listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and for those of you that are new to Scored to Death, the book was released in the summer of 2016 by Sylvan James Press, and it contains in-depth interviews with 14 renowned film composers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Today's episode is part one of an extended interview with a composer from Poland named Wojciech Golczewski, who has been scoring some of the most exciting, lower-budget genre films of recent years, including Dark Souls, Late Phases, We Are Still Here, Beyond the Gates, Tonight She Comes, Shadows of the Dead, and most recently, the historic action thriller Mohawk. He has also produced some fantastic concept synth albums, including End of Transmission, End of Transmission 2, Reality Check, and The Signal. Just a quick note before we get started. Please excuse the less-than-ideal sound quality of this episode. Inconsistent sound is the unfortunate reality of doing this type of podcast. I, of course, will always strive to provide you with the best-sounding show that I can, but due to the inconsistency of internet connections and recording methods, from episode to episode, the quality of the audio will at times be less than perfect. Okay, let's get started. Well, I want to thank you for doing uh, the podcast. It's a real thrill for me to talk to you. Pleasure is all mine. I would love to start off by talking about your early influences with music and how you got into music, some of your you know, early artists that you enjoyed and what inspired you to go into music? I started um, writing music when I was around uh, 11, I guess. I got a first uh, personal computer at home. I was Commodore 64. And uh, there was a program called uh, Voice Tracker, which allowed you to write music with... uh, Sid Cheap was a part of the Commodore 64, so it had three voices, and you had you had the opportunity to write a, a song that uh, songs that had three different voices at the same time played. So it's kind of three voice polyphony, and, uh, and that was the first time I actually started to composing any kind of like you could say songs. And then I stopped for a while, and when I was 13 or 14, I got my first PC computer and there was better software actually to write music there. So I started writing music uh, with uh, PC computers pretty much. And that was pretty much it. On uh, personal computers in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a big community called uh, Demo Scene, which were kind of like underground movement with people uh, using personal computers to create a different kind of, you could say, computer art. Uh, it was called Demos. So it was demonstrations of what this particular computer could do, pushing it to its limits and stuff like that. So there was um, thousands of people in Europe, mostly in Europe. In the US, it wasn't really that popular, but in Europe, it was very popular. At some point, there was like easily 50 
thousand people being a part of Demo Scene. Uh, on the different platforms like uh, Amiga, Commodore 64, and PC computers. Uh, so there was groups, groups consisted of graphicians, musicians, coders, uh, and uh, all these people just created this so-called demos. So I was a musician pretty much. Uh, I took the part of a musician and uh, started to write music for this purpose of being uh, competitive on a demo scene. So that's how I got into writing music at all. Uh, I was also doing some graphics. For us Americans that aren't familiar with this scene that you're talking about, I know you described it a little bit, but so it was a collection of people that were connected through the internet? How, how was the music exhibited? When everything started, there was no internet, right? Or it was just like a, a marginal thing, so there, there wasn't internet at all. The internet became a real thing after... 1995, 1996, I guess, that there was a, a big boom that changed the demo scene as well. And to be honest, many many actually think that uh, when internet became popular, the demo scene started to die. Because before that, there was a, a role on the demo scene called swapper. And these swappers were people that they were not a part of the creative part of the demo scene. Yeah. You, you could say they couldn't do anything of these things I mentioned. So they couldn't code, they couldn't do graphics, they couldn't do music. Maybe they didn't want to start, maybe it was just too difficult for them. No, that's not really important. But there was a role called swapper. And these swappers were people that were contacting with other swappers from other groups. And they maintained a network of contacts and they like the best swappers in the world at, at the time had like 300 contacts right so they were exchanging diskettes pretty much they were swapping stuff over they were sending the demos to different people and different people sending were different sending different stuff to them so it was just like a big you know network of people sending stuff to each other exchanging stuff yeah. and that was the way that people were sending the music the new music of of members of the groups the new demos and stuff like that except of course the big events which was demo parties where people actually were going to a certain place and just meet with each other and at at the peak of the demo scene the biggest parties in the world in finland or in poland were like I don't know, 20, 30,000 people there. So um, all these people came there and on these demo parties, there was uh, always, it was a couple of days or a few days. Um, and uh, during the uh, last one day or, or two days, there was so-called competitions. And in these competitions, uh, people were actually competing with each other in different categories. So uh, musicians were competing in a music Compo. Sure. Uh, you were making the whole uh, demonstrations called demos, and that was the main thing of the every demo scene. The demo scene party was a demo competition, yeah. and it was uh, at the peak. There was like huge awards and stuff like that. So it was like you know, it was a, a, a real big thing, and so you you were getting a fame, and uh, you know you were getting the rewards. So it was just like a, for young people. It was just amazing thing, and all these. And if you look at the, today's companies making games, I can guarantee you that like 
50% of the people who are making the best games nowadays are ex-members of the demo scene. Yeah. And these people spend like years learning to code on the demo scene, learning to write music, uh, doing graphics, and they are just have a really, most of them have really successful careers at the moment. Like, I don't know if you, if you know a composer called Jasper Kidd. Yeah. He's uh, one of the demo scene uh, legends as well. So people um, would create music on their computers and then they would share it by mailing floppy disks and tapes and stuff? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Before the internet. And then it eventually evolved into these huge parties that also included competitions where what people were doing would be judged. Yep, yep. Wow. Every attendant of the party could vote. So, um, so it was like chose by the people as well so yeah it was really really cool parties and um, and it's kind of bad that people nowadays can't really experience that because now demo scene is pretty much dead yeah nowadays there there's no limits so you, you could you can't really force yourself to to like squeeze something out of nothing because <laughs> yeah. everything is just so easy and accessible to everyone and uh when 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 you had computers like uh, Amiga 500, you knew that you know this computer has certain limitations, and for years it won't change. So people were just like squeezing absolute max with every possible you know free bit of memory or, or, or line of code to be opt optimized to actually do something incredible with that machine. And yeah. nowadays it's just like there's no point in doing that. There's no point in showcasing anything. It's just not how machine machines work nowadays. It's it's completely different. You can just replace one part of a machine with the other better one and everything what has been done uh, to that day become pretty much irrelevant or obsolete. Not important. Yeah, that's how it is. And <laughs> nowadays, uh, a demo scene exists, but it's just like a, a hobby of the many, like 40 years old now. That there's like pretty much no young people anymore in the demo scene. So the demo scene is pretty much dying with these last members who are still just doing it for fun. When did you start moving away from the demo scene? When I was like 16, I stopped. I sold all my computers and all my stuff. Uh, I devoted myself to traditional art, graphics, and I started to study at the um, High School of Art here in Poznan, which is one of the best schools in, in Poznan. And then I moved to Academy of Fine, art, Fine Arts as well. So um, I was on the road to actually become a, uh, an artist instead of a musician. Uh, but uh, around uh, 2000, one, I guess. I felt the urge to actually do something again, and I started composing again. And I found out that it's actually something that I enjoy more than art. And I guess I decided that uh, I'm just going to focus on music instead of, of the art. So I actually managed to finish the academy in 2007, I guess, but I never. I never put my master work, so I kind of finished the studies, but I didn't get my degree, which kind of sucks because it's, I wasted six years and all I had to all I had to do is just like spend a couple of days writing my master and preparing. But um, 
But I was too much into music to actually care about that anymore. So uh, for now, it turns out pretty okay, I guess. But, um, well, what kind of music were you listening to during these periods of time? I was listening pretty much to everything, I guess, which is still the case. I tried to listen to absolutely everything. I think every genre or every branch of music has a lot to offer in terms of uh, cool stuff you can get from it, you can listen. Uh, when I was um, 10, 11, I was listening to a lot of film music. Um, the first CD I ever bought was uh, was a soundtrack to Dracula from Wojciech Kilar. Probably one of the major influences in, in terms of who and what actually got me into writing music at all. When I was a teenager, I was listening pretty much everything, to be honest. I was listening to a lot of really, really heavy stuff. I mean, um, doom metal. Uh, I was listening to really, really uh, hardcore bands. And I was listening to a lot of electronic music as well. I was playing uh, in a few bands as well here in our local community, uh, metal bands mostly. Uh, I was playing on the guitar. And I actually started to write uh, uh, classical and film music on the Demos scene, which kind of made me a pretty unique voice on that scene because uh, there was not many people doing that uh, on Demos scene. You, you mostly get a, a, a electronic music type of stuff and uh, this made these demos pretty unique on the demo scene as well so I soon got uh, to be recognized as some someone different uh, and uh, it was kind of my idea because you know I, I didn't want to be a, a copycat of 10,000 different musicians on the demo scene who pretty much kept writing the same trance electronic and, and whatever works for demos uh, kind of music. How did you come to writing music for films? I mean, I, I know you said that you were kind of experimenting with doing that type of music, but how, you know, when did you score your first film and how did that come to you? Did you pursue it or did it just kind of fall on your lap? Well, um, like I said, it was natural that from demo scene, I was moving to writing stuff for games because many of my friends from the demo scene was already working in the gaming in industry. So they were just like asking me if I could just score this little game or that little game, and I started doing that. And then uh, the group I was in, called Plastic, was asked by Sony uh, Santa Monica, Monica Studio uh, from Los Angeles, which is a part of Sony. And we were asked to do some interactive demos or you can call it like a showcasing games for the for playstation 3 when, when it was coming out so it was actually sony that asked us to to do something because uh you say plastic plastic was the name of the group i was in it was a band or a group of it was a demos group we were, we were one of the best groups in europe at the time 
was like 2004, I guess. Yeah. And we were uh, winning a lot of competitions with our demos around Europe. So Sony noticed that, noticed the quality in our demos. Uh, and they asked us to do a stuff for PlayStation 3. And that's how my first PlayStation 3 games was created. It was called Linger in Shadows, which was kind of a demo, but we just managed to do some interactive parts in it for PlayStation 3 people. And then they asked us to do another one for PlayStation 4 called Datura three years later. So we did that as well. And from there, I decided that I just like games are not really my thing, to be honest. I mean, um, in long term, I wanted to do something else, but um, I didn't know how to do it, to be honest. So I started to look for uh, people that actually were looking for composers for the films. I was looking at a couple of portals. I can't even remember the names of at the moment, but uh, at that time I was looking and so if I noticed that there's a info that a production started on some film, right? I was just sending an email if I was, uh, I was searching for a contact info and if I found it, I was simply sending an email with um, telling them that um, I find their project interesting and uh, introducing myself and just hoping that they will come back to me. And after sending a few such emails, I actually got a pretty fast response from an Australian sci-fi film called Eraser Children. And, um, and that was it, I guess. That was the first uh, first feature film I actually scored. Like, how would you hear about a, an Australian science fiction film? Yeah, I was just... They were just uh, advertising that they started the filming of the film. Oh, I see. Uh, the first teaser was released. And back in the days, it was just like um, many uh, indie films were releasing a teaser while still in production. So to keep the bus going uh, on film, so you could still contact them before they even uh, finished the shooting. So it was still time to actually hire a composer um, for them. So you would just find out about these productions? Yeah, I was just finding out and trying my luck with them by, by sending my an email and uh, introducing myself and uh, sending some stuff of mine yeah. for them to listen to. And I guess the usual way, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, but it was just like all what I was doing at that time and I was just hoping that you know with the first one the second one will be easier to get and the third one would be even more easier to get which actually was not the case but, <laughs> but still that was my plan yeah I was I was doing some commercial work here in Poland uh, doing some small games so I was just hoping that I can make it and of course at in the beginning, I wasn't really thinking about any money or stuff like that. I was just willing to work to get some credits. That's how it is, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good advice for anybody pursuing anything. I always kind of say that I, I live a lot of my life and, and especially when I'm 
the things I want to do, like this podcast, or when I wrote the book where I interviewed composers, I always say, I live my life with like, what have I got to lose? And I just would email composers and ask them if they would chat with me like I did with you. And more times than not, people are willing to chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I think well, most people are actually really, really open to, to such things. And, and um, of course, many people didn't reply to me or just... sure. You know, you know, it's, yeah, job is definitely a different uh, a different animal. But you know, there's something to be said about uh, persistence and perseverance. Yeah, like you said, you or me, we have nothing to lose. We had nothing to lose. We we just write an email and just hoping for the best. Worst case scenario, someone will just not reply to you, and uh, he won't even remember your name next hour. So <laughs> yeah, who cares? And if you're lucky, and I was, you actually can make your dreams come true. So it's worth it. Yeah. If you won't try, you won't succeed. That's, that's for sure. Uh, so you basically pursued visual and graphic arts for education. So did music just always kind of come natural to you? It's hard to say, to be honest, because I was also, I was always interested in a lot of things. So it was really hard for me to focus on one thing. Sure. But I guess at some point I was just like, okay, if I'm supposed to do something to be good at something, I have to put some more effort into it and just you know, don't stop being distracted by the different things. But some people would pick up, uh, you said you played guitar. Some people would pick up a guitar or sit down at a computer and try to create music and or a keyboard and you know try, but some people just don't have an aptitude towards it. I mean, clearly you had some kind of musical ability or you wouldn't have been able to just do it well i guess i, I don't have any training in music to be honest i'm 100 uh, percent um, self-taught so um it's hard to say i just i just picked a guitar at some point when i when i actually sold my um, computers and stopped writing music on uh, on computers I replaced that with the guitar, I guess, because I instantly bought a guitar and um, started learning to play. I bought a bass guitar as well and learned to play bass. Uh, I learned to play uh, drums as well, and I pretty much do that all by myself. And was really teaching me anything. Uh, I'm not really a you know a prodigy, <laughs> but I you know I can play with with all this stuff to pretty good. Uh, extent, I guess. As someone who didn't uh, train in music and made an effort to pursue scoring films, not really having had trading in that, what's the goal f for the music you're creating? I mean, clearly every project demands something specific, but you know, ultimately, what do you think music does for a film? That's a tricky question because um, those are two ways you can you can write music for the film. I mean, maybe not even you can, two ways you can write music for a film, two ways you're allowed to do that, right? Because one thing is that there's a certain vision of uh, people behind the film, uh, the directors, producers, and uh, I guess the question is how much they allow you to actually bring anything from yourself into the movie, right? Yeah, because in many cases, it's just like they are really so focused on certain look 
and sound of the film they want to achieve. But there is not really much you can do in terms of um, being creative and you know making something unique. Because if they have a temp music in their score that they just are absolutely in love with, and everything you hear is just like, we want this to sound like this, this, or this, then you, well, you have to just make something like that without it being exactly like that. Yeah. So you don't really have a much room to actually do something else. Of course, in every, every, literally every film I make, I try to interest them with my ideas and try to do something stuff. I mean, try to do some stuff differently than they are expecting it to be. And in many cases, they are actually, wow, we didn't really think that this could work, but it works and we love it, right? So this is really great. Uh, if you if if you have people like that to work with, you know, it's going to be all right, right? Uh, if you have a people that are really, really focused on what they want to get from you and uh, they are not really open to any changes and suggestions, then you have to do your best to deliver what they want and make them happy because at the end of the day, everything comes down to them being happy and uh, you know your creative ideas and decisions you have to put them aside and just make everything possible to make the film sound just like they want it to because, because that's your job. But there are certain films I worked on and worked with certain people that I absolutely love that they are giving me so much freedom that I can pretty much do whatever I want. Uh, so Tonight She Comes, for example, it was such film. certain ideas but it was it was still like a big part of it of the score it was just my idea for the film and they loved it and they supported it and we created something different I guess and it's great but uh, but that's that's pretty much the only two ways you can you can approach and uh, it all comes down to the people you're working with if they are open to to trying to new new things or they just you know, because at some point, if you're doing like a TV film or something like that, there's really, they, they are not really interested in, you know, discovering a new ground or making something uh, unique or stuff like that. They are just focused on, you know, this is a TV film, it has a certain purpose. It, we are not, you know, they, they know they are not making a, you know, award-winning film material. They are just doing some TV film that is supposed to last for 90 minutes and and that they have a budget for that it has to be done fast and it has to be done with a certain quality but uh, 
but that's it. Well, you brought up uh, Mohawk, which unfortunately I haven't had a chance to see yet, but I did listen to a lot of the tracks. Uh, that's directed by Ted Gagan. Yep. And you said he gave you a lot of freedom, but you worked with him before on We Are Still Here. Yes. On the first film, was he as willing to give you as much freedom as he did on Mohawk? Pretty much, yeah. They had a certain, uh, him and, and producers, uh, because I also worked with, uh, we are working with the same producer, Travis Stevens, and uh, we are now friends. They had a certain ideas. They wanted me to do certain ways of music, do songs. I mean, they, they gave me, they gave me some directions. They wanted uh, the music to go and discover certain areas, and and that's it. And uh, they were they weren't really, you know, it has to be this, 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 or this. They, they were just open, completely open to anything I would suggest to them. And these films are really easy to do because they are so open, and they are not really trying to make me do things I don't feel like doing. And of course, if they feel like something is not working, we are just making fixes and everything is great. Uh, but the, the main part is just really, really great because uh, we have a lot of freedom. When you take on a project like uh, We Are Still Here, I'm guessing that a lot of the interaction happens online since I would imagine they're maybe here and you're in Poland. Yeah, pretty much everything film I made so far it's like uh, remote work so you don't really get to experience like a, a spotting session in a, tr a traditional sense where you sit down and you talk about like where music's going to go so how does it work when you're working kind of remotely is it uh, just notes through email or going through the movie over Skype or something and and watching it together that way all of these things, to be honest, because sometimes the spotting session using some software which like syncing us and we can just, uh, you know, watching it on uh, computers at the real time. And we have a, a conference. They are just hosting a session for me. I'm joining the session and we are just watching on, in real time and talking, discussing it. Uh, so it's a like like a spotting session, but just like not everyone is in the same room, right? I'm, I'm just watching it on my screen, and we are uh, having a, uh, a Skype conference, for example. And many films, we actually exchange uh, notes through emails uh, or just chat with Skype. So with uh, we are still here. That came out in 2015. early into the film did you join the process and how did you end up coming to work on it? I was working with the Dark Sky Films, which are producers of the We Are Still Here. Mm -hmm. I was working on the film with them called Late Phases. Before we are still here, uh, and I was hired to actually replace a composer on the late phases because well, something was not working for them. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know what, what was the problem, but it's not really my concern. But I was just hired to 
do something really, really fast. How long did they give you for late phases? That was like less than two weeks, I guess. Really, really fast work. And they really, really liked what I was doing. And I've noticed... How did they find you? That was actually one of my emails, I guess. Oh, okay, or, great. I think. I think. I can't remember uh, if I was still sending emails back then, if, if, if I was interested in something. But uh, it might be that they, I was recommended or, or, or actually contacted them. I can't really remember now. But one of, one of these two things. They gave you a little less than two weeks, probably. Yeah, I think like 10 or 11 days it was. Uh, I can't really remember. But it was really, really intense. Yeah. And they really liked the end results. So I was, uh, I noticed that they are doing this uh, film called We Are Still Here. It was in, um, there was, it was in the filming st stage. And uh, I was, uh, I'm a fan of horror films, I can, uh, so I, I read a, a couple of, of, of websites, like Dread Central back then, uh, at um, Fangoria. Uh, and it was, and there was a, a news about the film, and I've noticed, like, oh, this this sounds cool and looks cool because it was uh, winter and uh, it was a standalone house and you know, ghosts and stuff like that. Sounds great. And then I noticed that it was actually produced by Dark Sky Films, and I was just like, oh, okay, I just finished the film. Maybe I will just ask them if they have a composer for that. So I just sent them an email and uh, told them that um, I just found out about We Are Still Here. And if they ever need a composer for that, I would be really interested because, uh, well, I love this kind of films. And that was it. A couple months later, two or three, they sent back an email that they finished shooting and they just, and they would just like to discuss with me the, possibil the possibility to actually work on the film. And they passed my details to Ted and Travis director and the main producer. They also sent them late phases and they really like late phases. So they called me. We talked really, really not that much. And we decided we're going to do it together. So it was pretty easy. And that's just like the best way to actually get a job uh, through recommendations and through people that already know you and they recommend you to the others. So if I would ever given advice to anyone, I would just say that make sure to make as many happy people around <laughs> as possible when you're working on a project because it, it can just bring you a lot more work in the future. And if people will be pissed on you, you probably will have a hard time staying in the business. So so yeah, that's 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 how we are still here. Well, I have a I have a lot of questions based on what you were just revealing. So you're a horror fan. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I was watching like every horror film, but not not like I'm not a, a long, long time horror film fan, like uh, you know, thirty years fan. But I was at some point I just became a really uh, keen on horror films, like I don't know, fifteen years ago. Yeah, are there specific films or filmmakers that you got kind of drawn to when you got into it? I was actually, uh, well, of course, except for the iconic films like Dracula, uh, which I already mentioned because yeah. of the music. That was just like, th th this film in general uh, had a, a big impact on me. So it is, I think it's one of the greatest films created ever because uh, it's just absolutely beautiful, stunning film. And, uh, 
And then I actually start to watching a lot of Asian horror films, which was completely new to me at that point. Sure. Like 2005, I was watching like literally every single Asian horror I could get my hands on. And I was just like, wow, this is something completely different. And, you know, the, the aesthetics and the ideas and the way they actually try to scare you is just completely different. And I was like, really, really like, stunned by the by how scary these films are and how different they are than the regular horrors. Yeah. Of course, it started with the American version of the, the Grudge. Uh, but, uh, and then I just, well, it's pretty scary. Which film? The Grudge? Yeah, The Grudge. Yeah. So let's just try to discover the basics and just go to the or- originals. And then I watched the originals, The Rings and stuff like that. Yeah. The Grudge, the DI. Uh, and all of these horrors and I was just like wow these are a lot better than the remakes yeah and of course at some point I was just I I knew these horrors so well that I actually stopped being scared of them (laughs) I I knew exactly in which moment what what will happen and how they how how they actually create the tension and what the tricks are to actually scare you so but but still, visually, these films are, are, are really nice. Even the crappy ones are really good, good looking. So, yeah. so I was enjoying that. I, I wasn't really. I'm saying I, I'm not a long time horror fan, in, because you know nowadays there in the culture there's just like you know everyone loves Carpenter, and, and you know everyone loves retro horrors from from 80s and 70s. I I, I wasn't really. It was just recently that I actually watched many of these films that many people consider classics. Mm-hmm. And when I started writing electronic music for films, many people are just comparing me to Carpenter and stuff like that. In all honesty, I never really listened to Carpenter. I never really watched the films, maybe one or two of his films I watched when I was younger. And everything else I watched recently because, well, Apparently, it's something that I had to watch yeah. to be able to actually you know, talk to people because uh, I never, I didn't really watch. Any. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I interviewed Carpenter when I wrote the book. I interviewed Carpenter, but you know, while I was writing the book, this kind of synthwave style of film scoring was starting to really come back. So the book kind of started before that became a thing. But since then, a lot of these synth-based scores are being, everybody refers to them as, you know, Carpenter-esque. And and actually last night I was interviewing his son, Cody Carpenter, who scored, uh, you know, some uh, of a TV show that his father worked on called Masters of Horror. And he's very much in the synth music and and uh, also jazz fusion and stuff like that. And I, and I said to him, and, and you kind of, at least in your case, are confirming uh, somewhat of a theory I had, which is like, you know, this idea of all these scores being Carpenter-esque. Is it the composers that are being influenced by Carpenter and purposely making music that's that reminds listeners of Carpenter music? Or is it the listeners that are projecting 
this you know their own expectations of carpenter music onto the music being composed by composers who actually aren't trying to sound like carpenter but it seems like in your case it's the latter it's that people listen to it and read carpenter into it but it's not the intention of what you're doing yeah it was never intention to be honest i i i, I never really listened to carpenter music before to be honest i i, I was i, I just re-listened to a lot of his stuff for the first time ever yeah like a couple of years ago or maybe last year because well people were just do, telling me that i should do that but I, like i said i never really watched i mean i think it, it just comes that we we are the generation of this kind of music that just grew up on that and it's just like i think it's just like we we don't even realize how deep it is how, i mean uh, how deep inside us it, it is that this kind of aesthetic sticks with you. And now we are just older, we are close to 40 or 40, 40 plus, and the nostalgia is just bringing us back, whether we like it or not, to our childish days, uh, which of course is pretty much associated with this kind of music because it was like in every film, Top Gun or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. We just grew up on that. We, well, Top Gun is not Carpenter, but it's just like still the same. It's just not horror, but it's absolutely the same. And Top Gun and, and all these goonies and, and, and this kind of aesthetics is just so close to, to our hearts that we just want to go back to it. That the, the older we get, it just come out of us whether we like it or not. And and that's pretty much why I started to write electronic music for films again, because well, I just kind of feel the need to do that, not because it's just like a trend. And I think I actually started before it became a trend, because when I wrote the first ones, there was really not many people even talk about that. And I was already doing um, some electronic stuff for films. Yeah. And now just everyone throws that, no matter what kind of electronic it is, everyone will just throw that into retrowave, synthwave, or sure. carpentry stuff. No matter if it's just like a Mr. Robot, which is completely just, you know, it, it, it has nothing to do with carpenter or yeah. even, I would say, retro kind of electronic. It's just like good electronic stuff. Like the same with clean cells. Uh, Cliff Martinez. Uh, it's just like, you know, they felt the, the need, they created their own style, and they just kind of suffer now because, well, well not suffer per se, but they are suffer uh, by, by throwing them to the, the one big bag of uh, retro synth stuff, and uh, everyone just any any kind of electronic music nowadays would be just called uh, a retro. What I liked, you know, revisiting or visiting a lot of the films that you scored for the first time, and and going through kind of systematically and listening to the music in, in the context of the films, I found it very interesting and kind of refreshing that for the most part, when you look at your work as a whole, it's pretty eclectic. Like for instance, late phases, you know, there's electronic stuff. I mean, a, a lot of it's to me felt a little more contemporary than the kind of the synth wave stuff that is being compared to Carpenter, but it's also has this really great blend of like orchestral string sounds and more contemporary electronic sounds. <laughs> Thank you. 
you're given only 10 days to do the score, do they tell you that they want it to have kind of a symphonic sound or is that something that you came up with? Yeah, yeah, I think they, they, they wanted me to do something that is still a, a contemporary, but, but with some fresh approach maybe. So I kind of sneak in uh, a lot of electronic layers. But uh, like you said, um, many cues are still um, symphonic, traditional, organic, and uh, using um, traditional instrumentarium and orchestra. Uh, so, well, I was always mixing stuff. So my idea in Mohawk as well, there's a, a plenty of mix of um, actual orchestra with, uh, with electronic stuff uh, and in my many scores. So you, when you, when we hear that in Mohawk and late phases, it's not a synthetic orchestra. You actually worked with players. Yeah. It's, it's synthetic orchestra, of course, because we, we, we don't have a, a budget to, to actually hire orchestra. I, I don't actually, I mean, many people who, who, who are musicians, and work at orchestras probably won't like this, but uh, to a certain degree, you won't feel the difference, to be honest, because the technology of uh, sample libraries is so great at the moment that uh, you can pretty much do stuff that 98% of the people won't even find a difference. And um, there's uh, not many people that would actually like to spend a lot of money on something that you know, most people won't even recognize. When you're working on We Are Still Here, you said you had a, a short discussion with Ted Gagan uh, uh, initially. What are some of the questions that he asks you and you ask him? What What is talking to a director like? Do you have specific questions that are like your stock questions for a director in terms of what they might be looking for? Yeah, I guess it's just like the usual kind of questions like, what are your expectations? What you would like to achieve with that? How how, how do you? I mean, my one of the my main question is just like I try to ask them if they close their eyes and just see their films, what sounds they are actually hearing in their heads? How how, how what kind of music they are hearing? And um, you know, it, it, because it's just like if you get to know what's in their heads, what are their expectations? And what are they desires and ideas when it comes to sound and, uh, and the score? You're pretty much at home. You don't have to really guess anything because um, they will just tell you everything. Usually, it's hard to find a director that just will come to you and say, well, I don't really know. <laughs> Why don't you just do something and maybe I will like it or not? Uh, and we will see, no, they have their ideas and they have a certain image uh, of their film, how it should uh, look and sound. So it's pretty easy. I, I'm just trying to uh, get as much as possible info from them on uh, what the actual sounds are. And, uh, and of course, the second very important question is about emotions, because what I consider my music is all about emotions. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to focus on emotions in my music. So what kind of emotions the music should represent in particular scenes or uh, in general as well as a, as a general theme. Uh, so in, we are still here, we have this, you know, kind of 
we, we de develop the, the character of the, of the house itself as, 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 a, as almost a being, like something that actually lives, yeah. that's alive. So we, we created the voice of the house as it, if it was another member of the cast that is just not speaking at all throughout the film with a human voice, but we just tried to create something that is alive and breathing. This all strange voices and you know the the the, the, the organic type of uh, sound effects and and sounds that uh, we use to actually write music melodies themes with it. And I was uh, creating a lot of uh, sounds and developing a lot of sounds that were just like you know the sound of the old house, and we just later tried to write music with that and some simple music. Because we were thinking that um, a house won't really tell you uh, a, a, a really complex and difficult music. Uh, but rather just like uh, sounds here and there that will just create some harmonies from time to time and when certain notes will just hit each other and all of a sudden you hear the music out of it really um, minimal so that's how we actually approach that and um, and that's what I wanted to know from them from the on the beginning how they actually want to, to develop that in we agreed that it is just something, this kind of approach is something we would like to move on with. And um, and that's what we were focusing on. Yeah, that score uh, in particular is very atmospheric and not really, you know, thematic or, or melodic in, in a traditional film scoring sense. It is a lot more of just setting a mood and just creating an, a general uneasiness in the viewer and the listener as they watch. Yeah, pretty much. I, it, I can honestly say that I was actually a bit worried that it's a, just like a too minimal at some point because I was still like every every score is also a, a way to actually you know showcase yourself. Uh, and I was just like, well, if, if I'm going to put this sound for two minutes... <laughs> <laughs> Doing pretty much the same. Well, it's not going to showcase that much of my skills and abilities yeah. in terms of you know someone who may actually give me work in the future. But uh, but it just like turns out that people are actually love that score and they are for some reason really 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 into it. And many people are waiting for the release of the whole score on the vinyl and stuff like that, so we can wait. Uh, but uh, but it. it some really great sites were putting the score as a, like in, in top 30s or 50s uh, best electronic scores in horror of all time and I was just like what <laughs> it was just like it's like it's such a minimal score it's, yeah 
it, it goes back to kind of what you were talking about before about kind of the job of the composer and the job of the music. I mean, you kind of bring up a good point, which is like you kind of have to put your ego aside because you're really in service to the film and the filmmaker and you're part of a team. It's not your, your job's not to kind of showcase what you can do, even though you'd love to, because like you said, it can help you get more work in the future, but ultimately you have to do what the filmmaker wants or the producer wants and, and what's going to work best for that film uh, specifically. And sometimes in this case, like you said, people are responding to it, even though it wasn't necessarily something you thought people would respond to in that way. Yeah, exactly. So that's another advice. Just do what you think is best and what others think it's best and you it may just turn out completely different than you expect it to be because I was actually thinking that it will like no one literally no one will care about the score I mean it serves great and I was really 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 happy how it turned out in the end uh, I watched the film and I was just like okay we did it it's really working great it's a part of the house it's a part of the characters uh, it just creates attention and just like it, 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 it is everything we wanted it to be, I think. Yeah. But, <laughs> but as a standalone score, no one will give us, I mean, no one will just listen to it and just won't be interested in that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's ab absolutely the opposite to be yeah. honest. Like many people were just like messaging me, what a great score. Many people were actually giving me a job saying that you know we loved we are still here and the score to it is just like amazing and uh, i was just like oh that's just better than anything i could ask for sure out of it, to be honest. and from that day because it was really kind of like eye-opening experience because uh, it was just like the first film really that i absolutely put 100 percent effort into making everything as it's supposed to be and as a director and producer wanted it to be like nothing from me at all yeah just making sure that it just works for the film nothing more and nothing less just it has to work great for the film and turns out this is the best absolutely the best way to approach any kind of project and it will it will pay off yeah, uh, more than you ever expected to be uh, to to actually do, and, uh, and from there I'm just working on that basic. Okay, that's about the midway point, and probably a good place to stop for now. I of course need to thank Wojciech Golchevsky for being part of the show. Please come back in two weeks for part two of this fascinating interview, when we will dive into more of his work including the scores for the films Dark Souls, Beyond the Gates, and Tonight She Comes. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you could order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is available on most podcast apps and distribution sites, as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. 
Ratings and reviews will help the podcast get recommended to potential listeners and raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play Music, and most places you find podcasts, and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sat Sleepovers. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this podcast were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. You can find Wojciech on Twitter at W underscore Golchevsky, and you can purchase most of his music at wojciechgolchevsky.bandcamp.com. The soundtrack for We Are Still Here is available for digital download from Screamworks Records. And the soundtrack for Bram Stoker's Dracula by Wojciech Kalar is available on CD and vinyl LP from Columbia Records and CBS Sony. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. And please come back in two weeks for this interview's exciting conclusion. Thank you.